As you know, I go to the hospital every Tuesday, and my goal is evangelistic. I'm trying to reach people for Christ, and when people are hurting, they're sick, they're a lot more open to listen to the message of the gospel. And as I got out of my truck to head into the hospital, I felt prompted to put in the back pocket uh, this booklet that basically says 20 things wrong with Mormonism. And I put it in the back pocket. I just felt like something was going to happen. So I went into the hospital, went room to room, and I came across this couple. As soon as I walked in, I noticed that uh, they had the Book of Mormon. And this is one of those big ones. You remember those big Bibles that you'd have at your house? I mean, this thing was massive, and it was sitting on the bed. And so I asked them what was going on, and then I prayed for them. And uh, I said, I notice here that uh, you subscribe to the Mormon faith. They said, yeah. And I said, well, my views are a little bit different, and you don't want to get in a debate when somebody's sick. And so they said, well, what do you believe? And I said, well, can I speak freely? And they said, sure. So I graciously and gently explained why I thought Mormonism was wrong, and I went through all the details and basically said that Joseph Smith, the founder, was a false prophet. And we had a good discussion, and then I left. Well, I think about two days later, I got an email from one of the administrators there in the pastoral section saying that they were offended that I basically debunked their Mormonism. And she said, so what happened? And I said, well, I did hand them a booklet, and she said, well, it's policy. We're not allowed to hand stuff out. I said, well, look, they asked me my view, and I asked permission to speak freely, and they gave me that permission. So she was fine with that. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning is the subject of false teachers. Joseph Smith was a false teacher, and false teachers abound today. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Admittedly, this is a heavy chapter. It's very weighty. A lot of information here. We could do this in two or three messages, but we're going to give you a simple overview of this chapter. And what Peter's going to do is give an expose of false teachers. Now, remember, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. They're going through persecution. This is his second letter. And he's basically dealing with false teachers. They're infiltrating the churches. One of the things that the Christians in that day preached was Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the world. They believe Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And so the scoffers and the false teachers, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, were saying, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus isn't coming back again, and furthermore, he's not going to judge. God is never judged. So what Peter does in chapter 1 is he basically says, look, I know Jesus is coming back. You know how? I was on the mountain of transfiguration, and Jesus gave me, Peter, a preview of his second coming, because that's what Jesus did on the mountain. When he unveiled his flesh, he gave Peter and the other two a preview of his second coming. So he says, look, what I saw was genuine. It's not a tale. And then furthermore, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, look, this idea that God's not going to judge, he says, you're wrong. God judged in the flood, and if God judged historically in the flood, he says God is going to judge false teachers. So that's how Peter answers these false teachers. But another thing that he does is what we see in chapter 2. He takes one whole chapter and he does an expose on false teachers. Now, if you read Jude's epistle, which is very small, it's like a New Testament postcard, you will notice that there are similarities between 2 Peter 2 and Jude. That's because either Peter borrowed from Jude or Jude borrowed from Peter. 
Commentators are divided on that. It really doesn't matter. Jude gives us some details that Peter doesn't give us. So as we look at this chapter, there are several things that we're going to notice about false teachers. Let me share them with you. First of all, I would have you note the presence of false teachers, the presence of false teachers. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. Here it is, just as there will also be false teachers among you. I want you to notice the first word there, but. But is a contrastive word, and he's contrasting that with the end of chapter 1. Do you remember in chapter 1? It says that the true prophets of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote their prophecies down. And he's saying, just as there are true prophets, he says, Satan is also going to sow false prophets. That's the word but. There's always a contrast. And he says, just as there were false prophets among the people, who were the people? The Old Testament believers? He says, there's going to be false teachers among you, that is the New Testament church. And so Peter here is alerting us to the presence of false teachers, and he's basically warning us not to be surprised when we see a bevy of false teachers that show up on television and books and social media, they're all over the place. They are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. In fact, Paul told Timothy that this would happen in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, here it is, and doctrines of demons. All false doctrine, especially heresies, are demonic. Now, how do these lies, these demonic doctrines get disseminated? Well, he tells us in verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, false teachers are the purveyors of false doctrine. How can they do it? Because their consciences are seared. And notice he says this is going to be part of living in the last days. And here's the danger. False teachers not only come from the outside, but what's even more insidious is they come from within the church. Notice what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He's warning them, and he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, which would be false teachers, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them, therefore be on the alert. And so we see from Second Peter chapter 2 that we are warned that false teachers are going to show up. Their presence is going to be real. They come from outside with false religious systems, but they also will come up from within the church in the form of false Christianity. And the reason why we need to be alert and not asleep spiritually is because false teachers have two goals. Number one, they lead people into eternal perdition. And number two, they want to derail true Christians from growing in their walk with God. And so we have to be alert. I was reading a tragic story this week about a New Jersey couple who had two daughters. And four years prior, their one daughter died when she was hiking. She fell and she ended up passing away. Well, four years later, they lost their second daughter. She was devoured by an alligator. She had graduated from college and her and her boyfriend took a trip to India and they were snorkeling. 
And there are these massive crocodiles, as you know, that are in that part of the world. And they ended up crossing over from this one area, and the crocs went into another area, and she ended up being eaten by one of the crocodiles. You can imagine the pain of the parents. Here is what one of her cousins said in relation to her death, and I quote, such was an unnecessary death that there had been proper warnings and statements that there are in fact eating crocs nearby, I am sure Lauren would have not risked swimming, end quote. She's saying if there were proper warnings. Well, you know, the Bible gives us warning, and it tells us that there are spiritual crocodiles in the church. And you know what they want to do? They want to devour you spiritually. And so the first thing he mentions about false teachers is their presence. Secondly, I would have you note their influence. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, many, not everyone, but many will follow their sensuality. You see their influence? Many people are going to be hoodwinked by their false doctrine. And because of them, the way of truth is going to be maligned. In other words, false teachers always discredit Christianity. He is saying that their influence is pervasive, and we know today with social media, we are connected with the world, and so false teachers and their influence is pervasive. They are all over the place, and they influence other people. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? He said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and what? Many people are on that road. Now listen, that broad road that leads to destruction, it doesn't say destruction on it. See, that's the deception of it. Their influence is pervasive. Why? Because they like to tickle people's ears. They appeal to people's flesh, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4. For example, I mentioned to you Mormonism at the beginning. Mormonism was started by a man by the name of Joseph Smith in 1830. Joseph Smith was a seer. He really lacked integrity. And one day he was out in the woods and he asked God to give him wisdom on what church he should attend. And supposedly the angel Moroni and the father and the son appeared to him and told him, you're not to go to any of the churches because all of them are an abomination. You, Joseph, are going to restore the true church. And that's when Mormonism began. And when I shared with that couple, I said, look, this came so long after the apostles. I said, you're going to trust your whole eternal destiny on a young boy who basically had this apparition come to him, and he found these golden plates up in upstate New York, which were written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And Joseph Smith took these seer stones, which in the Old Testament was the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest. It was like how they discern God's will. He took these seer stones, put a blanket over his head, looked into a hat, and each character interpreted the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And one person would read it out loud and then record it. That's how we got the Book of Mormon. And there's so much plagiarism in the Book of Mormon. He says it came by the power of God, and yet we know that Joseph Smith plagiarized at least 27,000 things from the Bible. You see the influence of Mormonism? In fact, today, listen to this, according to the church, it has over 16 million members and 65,000 full-time volunteer missionaries. In 2012, the National Council of Churches ranked the church as the fourth largest Christian denomination, you can't even call it that, in the United States, and that's 2012. You see the influence of Mormonism? We could talk about JWs, uh, 
We could talk about other world religions as well. In fact, there are so many of them out there today. And so we see the influence of false teachers. That's why we have to be very discerning. We have to be grounded in our faith. We must know the truth. So we've seen their presence. We've seen their influence. Thirdly, I would have you note their beliefs. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Here is their beliefs. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. False teachers not only believe destructive heresies, but they also teach destructive heresies. Now, what is a heresy? Well, the original word means someone who chooses a wrong belief, and then they form a sect around it. And so, to simplify it for you, a heresy is a departure from the core doctrines of the faith. Now, you have to distinguish, this is important, between core doctrines and non-core doctrines. When I say non-core, I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just simply saying they're not essential for salvation. There are core doctrines and non-core doctrines. There are front-burner doctrines and back-burner doctrines. Christians can disagree over the non-core doctrines. They can disagree over the back-burner doctrines, and they're still Christian. Christians all the time, as you know, we have intramural debates with one another. We disagree. That's why you have denominations. All denominations within evangelicalism, we all agree on the core doctrines, whether you're Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Calvary Chapel, whether you're Methodist. The reason we're evangelical is we all agree on the core. The reason why we've split into denominations is because we disagree over the non-core. You say, well, what are the core doctrines that the false teachers twist? When you twist the core doctrines, you are teaching heresy. Here are some of the core doctrines. There's not a lot of them. God is a spirit and is the creator, sustainer, and consummator of all things. Why that one? Well, Mormonism says that God was once a man and he became a God. That's why you and I can become a God. So typically, when people have a distorted view of God, you will find the rest of their theology is typically off. God exists as a trinity. All religions and cults deny the trinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is sinless. False teachers will always demote Jesus as a created being. We see that with Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses. Also, number four, man is a sinner and in need of a savior. That's a core doctrine. Why? Because if man is inherently good and he's not a sinner, he has no need for a savior. Then also, another core doctrine is salvation is by faith alone and not by works. Now, we're not saying works aren't important, but works are a byproduct, not a requirement for salvation. All false religious systems and cults will deny that salvation is by faith alone. And then finally, the Bible is God's word from Genesis to Revelation. All cults and false religions, some of them actually believe the Bible, but it's the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. It's the Bible plus the book, The Watchtower Society. See, they always add. The, the Hindus, it's the Bible plus the Bhagavad These are the core doctrines, and you will find that cults and false religions typically will twist one of these core doctrines, if not all of them. 
And so evangelicals are united around these core doctrines. When someone denies one of these core doctrines or several, that should raise a red flag. So when you're listening to a teacher on television or a DVD or however, you need to make sure that they hold to these core doctrines. Be discerning. There are a lot of people today that go to churches, they don't know what the church believes, and they don't ask the questions. Trust me, I've been a pastor for 20 years. Most people come to churches because of style, because of the kids' ministry, and I'm not saying that's not important, but they don't ask the question, what does this church believe? You say, well, what are the non-core doctrines? What are the non-heretical doctrines that Christians agree to disagree over? Well, here's a smattering of some of the non-core doctrines just to help you. Loss of salvation. You know, Christians are divided on that. Can you lose it? Can you not? Are the miraculous gifts for today? Tongues, prophecy. Some say they are, some say they're not. Modes of baptism. Do you dunk or do you sprinkle? Forms of church government. Are you elder-led, pastor-led, etc., etc.? Soul sleep. Soul sleep is when you die, you don't go immediately to heaven, you kind of just are in a state of sleep and then God's going to raise you and that's when you go to heaven. Different views of end times, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, covenant versus dispensational theology, spiritual warfare, ministry of the Holy Spirit, what's the relationship of Israel and the church, the meaning of communion, the doctrine of predestination, did God choose you or did you choose God, women pastors. See, these are all non-core doctrines that Christians can agree to disagree, and they're still part of the family of God. We may not go to their church because we disagree with them, but listen, don't say, so-and-so's a heretic because they believe in women pastors. No, I would disagree with them. And listen, it's possible to teach a false doctrine but not be a false teacher. You say, well, then what is a false teacher? They tamper with the core doctrines of the faith the front-burner doctrines. You can disagree over the back-burner doctrines. You can disagree over the non-core doctrines and not be a false teacher. You just simply interpret the Scripture differently, and God will sort that out in the end. So what are the beliefs of false teachers? They teach destructive heresies. So whenever you listen to somebody, find out what they believe. Read the fine print and typically, when you get into the cults and religious systems, inevitably, they will have a view of Christ that is inadequate. They will have a view of God that is inadequate, and they always add to the Scripture. So we've seen the presence of false teachers, their influence, their beliefs. Fourthly, I would have you note their rebellion. Notice, if you will, verse 1 of Second Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, here's the root of the problem, and here is their rebellion, even denying the master who bought them. Who's the master? That's Jesus. You say, well, it says here that Jesus bought them. Are they saved? No. Jesus bought them in a provisional sense. He purchased their redemption. They just haven't accepted it yet. See, they deny Jesus' lordship. They don't want his salvation. They deny the Jesus that purchased their salvation. Verse 10 of chapter 2, he says this to the false teachers, they despise authority. They despise authority, the authority of Christ. And so here's the deal. All false teachers, if you get down to the root of it, for most of them, it is a rebellious heart. 
They may not believe in Jesus, they may not believe this, that, or the other, but in the end, they don't want Christ or God ruling over them. Why? Because they love their sin. That's ultimately what it comes down to. I was having a YouTube discussion recently with a gentleman. I started a YouTube channel where I do some teaching, and this one kid commented, and he said, there is no, there is no evidence for Christianity or Christ. Well, if you're going to throw that challenge at me, of course, I'm going to respond back. And so him and I, last Sunday, we went back and forth, and I was giving him evidence for Christianity. He said, there's no extra-biblical sources for Christianity and Christ. I said, absolutely there is. There's 11 sources outside of the Bible that say Jesus existed. I said, there's more evidence for Jesus' existence than there is Caesar Augustus. And so as we went back and forth, I said, look, you want to know why you don't believe in God and you don't believe in Christ? I said, here's the reason. You love your sin. I said, you lust, you got pride. I said, you, and I listed. Now, obviously, I wasn't trying to condemn him, but I was trying to show him that he violates the law of God. And you know what he said to me? He said, you don't know me. He said, how do you know? And I said, of course I know you, because I know myself, and I know humanity. And the Bible says that sin is endemic to all of mankind. And I said, therefore, we've all violated the law of God. You know what? He didn't respond back to me on that one. Why? See, because people instinctively know. Whenever you go down to the sinfulness of man, people know their own hearts. When I debate people online over political issues all the time, and they say, Trump is this, 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 and this, you know what I often say? Well, guess what? You're this, 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 and this. And I said, so don't be quick to judge him when you have sin in your life. And you know what? It usually silences them. Why? Because they see their own sin. And so here, he says false teachers are rebellious. Why? They don't want to accept Jesus' salvation, who purchased it for them, and they don't want Jesus lording it over them. Listen, do you want God telling you how to run your sexual ethics? This is where a lot of Darwinian evolutionists who don't believe in God, in fact, one of them said, I don't want God telling me how to regulate my sexual life. That's most of them. Well, there's a fifth thing he mentions here about false teachers, and that is their judgment. False teachers are going to be judged. In fact, they're not only going to be judged, but they're going to be judged in a greater way. James 3.1 says what? Teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because you're leading people, you're influencing people, and to whom much is given, much is required. Now, Peter here is going to use very strong language as he denounces the false teachers and their judgment. Notice, if you will, 2 Peter 2, verse 3. He says, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, it appears that God is letting false teachers get away with what they're doing. He's saying, look, God is not slow. He's going to judge in his time. In 2 Peter 2.14, here's what he says about false teachers. They are accursed children. They're under a curse. They're under the judgment of God. And then in verse 17, he says, they are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom, this is strong language, the blackest darkness has been reserved. You see, their condemnation is going to be greater. Now, what Peter's going to do here is he's going to give us three examples from history to show us that God judged historically. And if God judged historically in the past, he will judge false teachers in the future. Why is he using this? Well, the false teachers were saying, God's not going to judge. Isn't that what false teachers do today? When you mention they're going to be accountable to God, they scoff at that. 
So Peter's going to use three examples from history to show us that God judged historically. The first one is fallen angels. Notice, if you will, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, Now, we could be talking about the original angels that rebel and when Satan took one-third of them with him, but I think here he's referring to a specific sin, and that is in Genesis chapter 6, when you remember it says that angels sort of took on human form, and they tried to have sexual relations with women, and the reason why is because they wanted to produce this hybrid race, like a Rosemary's baby, and the reason is to pollute the messianic line. And so those angels that came down and tried to cohabitate with women, God took those angels and what did he do? He consigned them into everlasting judgment. They are reserved for judgment. So God judged fallen angels. The second example is the flood generation. Not only fallen angels, but the flood generation. Look at verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Why did God send a flood and drown that whole civilization? It was because Genesis 6 says that the imagination of everyone's heart was continually evil. He's saying, look, God judged fallen angels, and he judged the flood generation. And then he gives one other example from history, the filthy lives of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice, if you will, verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. Remember when God incinerated that city because of its homosexuality, because of its indifference to the poor? Having made them an example of those who live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued, verse 7, righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. That's what drove Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, there's a push today that homosexuality is a gift from God. There are pastors who claim that they're homosexual, that God is okay with it, and the answer is no. For by what, verse 8, he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. In other words, Lot was living in Sodom And even though Lot had his failures, Lot was a Christian, and he was tormented by the filthy lives of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, in Noah's case, God got him out before he sent the flood. In Lot's case, God got him out before he incinerated that city. And here is Peter's point. If God judged fallen angels, if he judged the flood generation, and he judged the filthy lives of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to judge false teachers. That's his point. You see, God has set a historical precedent. God is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. But make no mistake about it. Any preacher that tells you that God does not judge is not being true to Scripture. And if God judged historically, the fallen angels... Um, he judged the flood generation and the filthy lives of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is going to judge again. But here's the good news. God will spare his people. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not going to be under the judgment of God. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 5. It says, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved who? 
Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see, God judged the flood generation, but he preserved Noah. Then look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. You see, he delivered Lot. And by the way, you could argue that Noah and Lot are pictures of the rapture. Before God brings the seven-year tribulation, he's going to remove his people. And then, of course, he ends it in verse 9 by saying this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. In other words, God will rescue those who know Jesus Christ. He will rescue you from the wrath to come. And so here's the issue. False teachers are under the judgment of God. Listen, the Bible paints a very scary picture. Why is God harsher upon false teachers? Why are they going to be judged more severely? Because to whom much is given, much is required. Now, does God expect everyone to have perfect teaching? Absolutely not. He knows we're not. But when you have false teachers that deliberately lead people astray, they are going to be judged more severely. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've repented of your sins, God will save you from the judgment to come. Well, there's one final thing that Peter here mentions about false teachers, and that is their character or behavior. Their character or behavior. And what he's going to do here is we're going to look at several sub-points of their character and their behavior. Now, the reason why Peter here is going to give us a list of their character and behavior is so that we would identify the false teachers. Do you remember back in the day when they would produce uh, milk cartons that were made out of, uh, what is it? Not plastic, but uh, the cardboard. And do you remember sometimes on those milk cartons on the back, they would have a picture of a child And they would say, this child is missing, and they would give you the eye color, the hair color, the height, and where they're from. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted to give you the characteristics of that child so that you would be able to identify them. What Peter's going to do in this last point is he's going to give us their character and their behavior to help us identify false teachers. So what are some of the sub-points of their character and their behavior? First of all, they are deceptive or secretive. That's their character and their behavior. They often are deceptive and secretive. Now, some of them are out in the open. They will tell you, obviously, if you're in a false religious system, they don't think they're in a false religious system. That's easier to identify. Most of us know Islam is not the truth. But where a lot of Christians get hoodwinked is they don't know about Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or other cults. Notice what he says here in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, here it is, who secretly introduce destructive heresies. Notice they're clandestine. They don't show up with a pitchfork and horns and say, I'm a false teacher. What they do is they mix truth with error, and if you don't read the fine print, you would never know if you're not a grounded Christian. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deception. Some of you may have the translation reveling in their love feasts. Love feasts were like potlucks in that day, like we have today. And what happens is these false teachers would mingle among the potlucks. Why? Because they're almost like other Christians. They mix and they mingle, but they are very deceptive. My younger daughter, 
was telling me about her daughter, my granddaughter, that she doesn't like eating certain vegetables. And so she said, I concocted an idea. What I did was when I give her mashed potatoes, I stick the vegetables in the mashed potatoes and I hide it so that she will eat the vegetables. I remember years ago when I was living in South Florida, I remember I put this uh, rock in the garbage can and they would come by and pick it up. And I noticed that uh, the garbage collector took the rock out and wouldn't do anything with it. And he dumped the garbage. And I was like, why won't he take that rock? I said, I'm going to come up with an idea. And you know what I did? I tucked it away where he couldn't see it. You see, that's exactly what false teachers do. They're, they're, they're clandestine. They're secretive. You've got to know the truth and read the fine print. They mix enough truth with error. That's why you have to be a Berean Christian. A Berean Christian in Acts 17 is one who knows the truth, who searches the Scripture. Listen, if you're not in the Word on a regular basis, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, you're more likely to get hoodwinked by the cults because you're not grounded in your faith. That's why you got to dig into the Word of God and know the truth. There's another characteristic or character behavior aspect to false teachers. Not only are they deceptive, they are sexually immoral. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Verses 13 and 14, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, if people want to revel, usually it's at nighttime because they want to be secretive. But these false teachers in his day, they would revel, commit shameful deeds, not at night, but at daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Look at this, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. In other words, they go after people that are vulnerable. They go after people that maybe are coming out of a certain thing, a cult or whatever else. They prey on weak-willed women is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Why? Because they're driven by their sexual appetites. Now, let me say this. Not every pastor or leader that falls into sexual sin is necessarily a false teacher. David was a man after God's own heart. He committed adultery and he committed murder. He paid the rest of his life, but God forgave him, and he wasn't a false teacher. And listen, not all false teachers are necessarily sexually driven. And here's the thing you have to understand. Not all false teachers are going to manifest all these characteristics all the time. I've known Protestant pastors, and I've known priests who are very moral on the outside. They're not sexually immoral. They're not greedy for money. But you know what? They deny the core doctrines of the faith. So not all false teachers are sexually immoral, but here they are. Notice what he says in verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice. The word there is used of a fisherman who baits the hook and allures by fleshly desires. This is exactly what Jim Jones did. I saw a whole expose on Jim Jones. Do you remember when he had that cult in Guyana, South America? And if you look at his life, he was sexually driven. He was sleeping with multiple women while he was married. It says, by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They go after new Christians, and they go after those who are vulnerable. If you want a contemporary illustration, you'll notice the picture up on the screen. You've probably never heard of this cult. His name is David Berg. 
David Berg, back in the late 60s, started a group called the Children of God. And ostensibly, they appeared to be Christian because they used Christianese language. But when you get into the cult, you find out that he was a sex monger. He believed in incestual sex. He believed that sex brought us closer to God. And he used that theology to justify sleeping with teenagers. There's 130 communities of this ministry called Children of God. And this is how they allure people. In fact, one of the ways they allure people is what they call flirty fishing. Now, you remember Jesus said we're to be fishers of men. And so what they do is the women will use sexual seduction in order to get men to come into this cult. And so we see this typically with false teachers. There's another characteristic or behavior that false teachers manifest, and that is this. They are controlled by their fallen nature as a lifestyle. Notice, if you will, verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. False teachers live as a lifestyle by the flesh. Why? Because they're not saved. They're not regenerate. They don't know God. In verse 10, Peter says they are daring and self-willed. They don't live by the Spirit of God. They live by their flesh. Verse 19, he says this, promising people freedom while they themselves, here it is, are slaves of corruption. See, they're driven by their false nature. He says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They tell people, hey, follow me and I'll give you freedom. I'll lead you to the promised land spiritually. But you know what? They are driven by their fallen nature. And listen, we all sin in the flesh, right? But if you sin in the flesh as a lifestyle, and that's the pursuit of your life, that's the bent of your life, you better check the foundation to see if you're saved. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5. Jude says they're void of the Spirit. Here's another characteristic that he gives of false teachers here. They are blasphemous towards the supernatural. Now, this one's a little bit harder to understand. We don't see a contemporary parallel today that much, but here's what they were doing in his day. They are blasphemous towards the supernatural. Look at verses 10 through 13. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. These false teachers would literally revile angelic majesties. Verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord, he says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. You say, what is he talking about here? Well, what he's saying is these false teachers are like animals, born to be captured and killed. You say, well, what do you mean animals? Well, animals operate off instinct. They don't operate off of reason. I know you think your dog is very smart, and yes, they do follow your orders probably, and they learn certain things, but listen, we know dogs, they're separate and other animals from humans in that we're made in the image of God. We are rational creatures. Yes, dolphins are smart, I get it, but they operate off instinct. These false teachers are like animals, and he says, look, they revile the supernatural realm. And he says, you know what? 
Not even other angels will commit the behavior that they commit. If you want to see a parallel to this, read Jude. Here's what Jude says. Jude says that when Moses died, Satan and Michael, both of them are cherub angels. As you know, Lucifer was the choir director of heaven, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. He led the music. So when Satan was thrown out of heaven, the first place he fell was in the choir loft. Why? Because he's corrupted music since then. And so Lucifer and Michael are arguing over the body of Moses. We don't know why. And by the way, the Old Testament doesn't mention this. It's an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses that mentions this. But they're arguing. And you know what Michael does? Michael is more powerful than Lucifer since Lucifer fell. Michael doesn't say to Lucifer, get out of here, you jerk, bah, 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 bah. You know what Michael says to Lucifer? He had a healthy respect for his supernatural power. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And Peter is saying, wait a minute. If Michael treated Lucifer with that kind of respect, how is it these false teachers are blaspheming and reviling angelic beings? Now, we don't know exactly how they were doing this. I tried to look it up and find out and There was nothing I could find on this. We don't know a parallel today. I will say this. Sometimes in the charismatic movement, they can become blasphemous and arrogant towards that realm, especially demons. Now, I'm not saying they're false teachers, but sometimes we have to be careful that we have a healthy respect for the supernatural, even demonic beings. We don't need to fear them because the Bible says in 1 John 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But there needs to be a healthy respect. And so these false teachers, one of the characteristics they manifested in terms of their character and behavior is they blasphemed the supernatural. Here's another characteristic of them. They are greedy for money. I think we all know this. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you. Interesting word in the Greek. It means to make merchandise. They make merchandise out of the sheep. And how do they do it? He says in verse 3, with false words. The Greek word there is plastic. They use plastic words. They manipulate people in order to get money out of their pockets. Now, is this not a characteristic that we see today with a lot of these prosperity teachers? I don't know how many of them are false teachers or not, but I can tell you this. Some of them, and I won't name them now, it is so obvious that they are fleecing the flock. It is so obvious they're making merchandise out of people. And how is it that Christians, supposed Christians, are following them and listening to them? Look what he says in verses 14 through 16 of 2 Peter 2. Having a heart, look at this, trained in what? Greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, verse 15. They have gone astray. And then he's going to use an example from the Old Testament of greed. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke, verse 16, for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. You say, what's going on here? Well, if you remember in the book of Numbers, there was a king, his name was Balak, he was the king of Moab, and he was scared of the Israelites, and so he hired this prophet called Balaam. And Balak said to Balaam, hey, I want you to curse the Israelites. Well, Balaam said to Balak, look, I can't curse the Israelites. They're God's chosen people. God has told me not to curse them. But Balaam, because he loved money, you know, Balak offered him a lot of money. 
And he said, look, I can't curse the Israelites. But because Balaam loved money, he came up with an idea. And here's what he told the king of Balak. He says, look, get your Moabite women to wear Victoria's Secret. And get them to intermingle with the Israelite men. And here's what will happen. They will fall into sexual sin and then they'll fall into idolatry because those two are concomitant with one another. Usually idolatry and immorality go together. And that's exactly what happened. And God judged the Israelites. And you know why Balaam gave Balak that advice? He was motivated by money. In fact, God tried to restrain him and he used a donkey. Remember the donkey turned around and said something to him? Now, I don't know about you, but if I had an animal speak to me, I would say something is up here. And yet, in spite of that, he still gave that pernicious advice. And so false teachers are motivated by greed. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have things, but if you notice some of these prosperity teachers, everything is about money. Their whole ministry revolves around seed faith. Give this, God will give you this, give this. I was reading about a crab this week. It's called a coconut crab. Look at the size of this thing. Now, those of you who like crabs, I'm sure this would be a feast for you. They are in the Pacific Islands, and they're kind of, I wouldn't say they're endangered, but they have limits on how many of them you could actually take. But the reason they're called coconut crabs is because their pincers are so strong, they're able to break through a coconut, crack it open, and eat the meat within the coconut. That's why they're called coconut crabs. They love coconuts. But here's another characteristic of these coconut crabs. They are attracted to silver, things that are shiny. So if you have jewelry laying around, if you have silverware laying around, or anything shiny, you know what they'll do? They'll grab it and they'll take off. And I thought that's a classic illustration of false teachers. They're attracted to the shiny. They want the money. They're disciples of dough. And so when you listen to a ministry, listen to what they talk about all the time. If they're constantly talking about money, and many of these guys live at a level, I won't name the teacher, but I watched this one expose on this one who I believe is a false teacher. The whole time he talked about how big his houses were, how how much money he makes, and everybody in the audience was kind of quiet because it's almost like they can't aspire to his level, his million-dollar jet, and I'm thinking, man, there's something off here. That's what you will notice with a lot of these false teachers. Well, a couple more characteristics as we close here. In terms of their character and their behavior, they make false promises they cannot keep. He says in verse 17, they are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Have you noticed that uh, if you're thirsty and you come across a spring and you think you're going to get refreshed physically and there's no water, you get disappointed? He says that's false teachers. They promise to refresh your soul with life-giving water, but in the end, your soul stays parched. He says they're mist driven by what? The clouds. In other words, it's supposed to rain. The mist is there, but you never get the rain. And so here's their point. They make promises they cannot keep. It was like the time I was thirsty, and my favorite soft drink beverage is Coke. Forget Pepsi. I like Coke. And I remember I was getting a Coke, and I really wanted one, and I hit the thing, and the Coke came out, and it was empty. So I punched the machine. No. But you can imagine, I'm thinking, I'm going to get a Coke that's filled, and the Coke can was empty. I got cheated. And that's exactly what they do. Look at verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
In other words, they make promises they cannot keep. We'll give you health. We'll give you wealth. And you know what? If you don't get the health and you die, you don't get the wealth, they'll say, brother, sister, the problem is you. You lack faith. It's not us. See, false teachers can't give what they don't have. Here's another characteristic. They are filled with pride and arrogance. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They're not interested in the glory of Christ. They're not interested in advancing his kingdom. They are more interested in themselves and their own kingdom. They're the heroes of their own stories. And then he says this about them in terms of their character and behavior. They produce false converts. Now, this is a controversial section. I'm going to give you the two different views on this. Let me read it, and then I'll unpack it for you. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world. Now, who's the they in verse 20? Well, some people believe it's referring to the false teachers. Other people think it's referring to their converts. It's really hard to tell. Commentators are divided. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they supposedly are saved. They know Jesus Christ. And what happens? They are again entangled in them and are overcome. In other words, they get saved supposedly, and then after a period of time, they get disillusioned. They go back to their former life. They get entangled. He says the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, they're better off not knowing the truth than knowing it and then going back to the muck and mire. He says, verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. And then he's going to quote here from Proverbs 26, 11, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog, and by the way, dogs in that day were not domesticated little cute pets that you had in your house. They were mongrel, filthy beasts. He says, a dog returns to its own vomit, and, and here he doesn't quote from the Bible, he gives some type of quote from some book of sayings, a sow or so, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. In other words, they're not sheep. They are like dogs and pigs. Now, here are the two interpretations of this passage. Number one is he's referring to people that are truly converted, because it says here that they have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for knowledge there is a deep, intimate knowledge. And so, they are saved, but what happens is these individuals, these converts of these false teachers, go back into error and their wicked lifestyle. And what Peter is saying here, according to view number one, is they lose their salvation. He says it's, it would be better off for you not to know the truth than to know it, embrace it, and then go back to the muck and mire. And we know a lot of Christians in the church today that supposedly make a profession. They seem to be saved. We all have family members. I mean, they seem to have produced fruit in their life at one point, and now they're not even walking with God. What do we do with those people? Well, they would say they had salvation, but they lost it. The second view is this. They never were saved to begin with. Now, this is the view that I hold. They never were saved to begin with. Well, you say, wait a minute. He says they know Jesus Christ. Well, they appear to know Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why I think they were never saved to begin with. Here's why. The two illustrations that he uses are a dog and a pig. You say, what's the point? 
Well, listen, you can take a pig, and I was told after the first service, most pigs follow this pattern. You can take a pig, clean it up, put a bow tie on it, and you let that pig loose, what happens? That pig will go right back to the muck and mire. Why? Because its nature has never been changed. Its nature is to wallow in the mud. What is a dog's nature? A dog's nature is to go back and lick the vomit. And so here's his point. These people never were saved to begin with. Their nature never changed. Their outward behavior changed. They supposedly escaped the corruption of the world, but they've never been saved. Their nature has never changed. And he's saying they're false converts. Now, you see this with false teachers and their converts. I know a guy right now, I've mentioned him on a Wednesday night service. His name is Bart Erdman. You may have never heard of him. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina. He was with Young Life years ago, supposedly had a conversion experience, was transformed. He went to Moody Bible Institute, learned the Bible, was supposedly walking with God. Then he went to, he went to, uh, a seminary up in New Jersey, Princeton Seminary, which is a little bit liberal. And he wrote a paper trying to reconcile something in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And his professor gave him back his paper, and he, said on, he marked it, and he said this, I know, Bart, that you're trying to kind of harmonize Mark and what he said, but how about maybe Mark just got it wrong? And he said that really stuck him in the heart, and that sent him on a journey. He's a brilliant man. Now he's an agnostic. He's written books against Christianity. And listen, he has turned away so many people from the faith, especially in the university system. He's an apostate. He would fit into this category. Someone ostensibly looks Christian, and you know what? They seem to talk the talk. He would be like a Judas. Outwardly, looks saved, but his nature never changed. And so that's what happens here. There's one other characteristic, and we'll close In terms of their character or behavior, they twist the scripture. Notice, if you will, verses 15 and 16. This is chapter 3, though. John's going to get to this next week. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. In other words, he's saying, look, the apostle Paul talks about salvation in his letters. He says, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Peter here, this is kind of hilarious. He's saying, look, Peter's, Paul's talking about salvation, and some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. We all agree with that. And notice what he says, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You see what he's saying about the false teachers? They took Paul's letters that were being circulated in that day. The Bible hadn't come together yet in the 27 books of the New Testament, and they were taking Paul's letters and they were twisting them. And you know what they would do? They would write a letter with error in it, and they would ascribe an apostle's name to it and float it, and it would confuse Christians. So those are all the characteristics or character behavior of false teachers. And so what have we learned this morning about false teachers? Well, we've learned about their presence. They're going to be around. Secondly, we've learned about their influence. Their influence is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Number three, their beliefs. They teach heresies. Number four, their rebellion. They don't want to submit to the lordship of Christ. Number five, we've learned about their judgment. And then finally, we learned about their character and behavior. And so as I close, how do we overcome them? How do we overcome them? Jude gives us more details, but let me just give you one thing as we close. You'll notice up on the screen right here. 
Now, notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, it's all about false teachers. But I want you to notice it's bracketed by two bookends. Chapter 1, Peter says, grow. Chapter 3, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? In the discussion of false teachers in the middle, he brackets it by saying, grow. You know what the key is to overcoming false teachers? Very simply, you and I need to grow in our walk with God. We need to move from being milk Christians to meat Christians. We need to be grounded in our walk with God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know basic Bible doctrines. You know why? A lot of the cults poach a lot of believers from the church because you have a lot of believers that do not know what they believe and why they believe it. If a Jehovah Witness came to your door, would you be able to defend why Jesus is God and not a created being? 